We continue to study the subject of eschatology from the scriptures. And our intention is to look at the book of Revelation, but it has become apparent to me as we prepare for going more in-depth into the book of Revelation that there are plenty of questions that we all have in regard to some of the different views of the end times and how it all fits together with the book of Revelation. And so I think it is helpful to step back and to do a few messages and lay some groundwork and to gain some understanding of the different views, but then consider, of course, the scriptures and what God would have us to understand from his word. So you may remember if you were here that I have pointed out to us from the pulpit that there are four views in regards to the book of Revelation itself and how to interpret the book. And those views are that some have looked at it from a historical perspective or historicist and that it's chronologically fulfilled in time. There are those that take a preterist approach and they say the majority of the book was relating to, referring to events that happened before and during AD 70 and the destruction of the Jewish economy and the Jewish temple. Then there are those who are futurists and they say the majority of the book is dealing with things that are yet future to us. And then there are those who are spiritualists or idealists and they say that the book was written to give principles of godliness for the people of God throughout the ages. Well, today we're going to look at another four views, and these ones in particular deal with the issue of the millennium, the millennium. In Revelation chapter 20, it mentioned, it mentions a thousand year period, and mill, millennium, refers to the thousand years. But these four historic views really present more than simply a view of what we call the millennium period. They also, in many ways, present an overall timeline or time frame of eschatology or end times events. We looked at, last time, the teaching about the two ages in Scripture and that the Bible divides all of human history at the broadest level into two ages, this age and the age to come. And we talked about the fact the Bible teaches that these are qualitatively different ages, that this age is called the present evil age, that this age is characterized by death, it's characterized by sin. There are temporary institutions such as marriage that are in this age, but Jesus teaches that in the age to come, there will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There, we will be like the angels in heaven and that we will be married no longer nor given in marriage. And we looked at the reality that the dividing line between these two ages is the return of Christ and that the scriptures teach that Christ will return and he will return one time and there won't be a return in ages but one return of Christ, and that at that time, 
all of the dead will be raised. There will be a judgment. There will be the new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwell and all of God's people will dwell there with him forever and the wicked will all be cast into the lake of fire and they will suffer eternal conscious torment apart from the blessings and favor of God. The four views in history regarding the end times or the millennial views are historical, as it's sometimes called, premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism and then dispensational premillennialism. We'll talk about what those mean in just a moment. All of these views the pre's and the posts and the ah have to do with the timing of the return of Christ. Is it going to be pre-millennium before a millennial kingdom? Is it going to be post-millennium after a millennial kingdom? Is it going to be ah? And I hold to the ah mill position. I basically outlined some of that in detail last time. Not that there is no millennium, but we are in the millennium age right now and at the end of this age Christ will return okay now when looking at the history of the church we can see from the earliest church writings that there were many who were premillennialists during that time but according to the writings of the early church fathers there were those who were not premillennial, but would have fit more in the amillennial camp. Amillennialism was more specifically outlined by Augustine in the 5th century. Then postmillennialism became more prominent in the 17th and 18th centuries. And then dispensational pre-tribulational Premillennialism became a system was outlined or defined in the 19th century. So as history falls, as, as those systems are articulated in written form by theologians, you see that progression. And the newest kid on the block is the system which is actually the most prominent today and that people are most familiar with because of radio teachers, TV preachers, Etc., and that is what is called the dispensational view. We sh- use shorthand for that, and we're going to talk about that view and some of the distinctives of it. So, as we walk through these several views, historic, as it's called sometimes, premillennialism teaches that. We have the Old Covenant era, and we have the Old Israel, which was the ethnic people of God that God had made a national covenant with. And then at Christ's first advent and his resurrection, we enter the gospel age, and that the new Israel is the one body made up of Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Christ Jesus, and that Christ has instituted a new covenant. And then it says, 
at the end of the gospel age, Christ will return in his second coming or second advent in glory and then will begin a thousand year and some will see this thousand years in Revelation as literal, some see it as figurative of a perfect period of time, but there will begin then after the return of Christ a literal kingdom in which Christ will reign on the physical earth and then the final judgment will take place after that kingdom. So that's the historic, if you will, premillennial view. That's a view that was held by the early church fathers and has remained until today. The postmillennial view, in some ways, is very similar to the amillennial view that I outlined last week. It sees the two different ages in, in some similarities. But postmillennialism says we had the old covenant era, the resurrection of Christ, that there's the church age. It begins with persecution and humiliation of God's people, but then it will progress into an exalted millennium period, a golden age on earth in which the entire world is basically Christianized and at the end of that golden age, post-millennium, after the millennium, that golden age being the millennium, then Christ will return. And then we will have the resurrection from the dead and the final judgment and the new and the eternal state. So post-millennialism is very optimistic and it looks at passages such as the parable of the leaven or the parable of the mustard tree and a parable of 11 says the kingdom of God is like, uh, like this bread being made and a little bit of yeast put into it and it fills the whole loaf. Or like the mustard seed that starts out small and then expands. And it will say that we are seeking to advance the kingdom of God and that it will grow throughout the world until the entire world is basically Christianized in this golden age and then Christ will return. So obviously if you're a post-millennialist, unless you are just delusional, you're going to say Christ's return is not imminent. He's not coming back anytime soon. Because we sure don't see a golden era in history right now, do we? So, you see, there's some views which, within these views, Christ's return could be imminent. It could come basically at any time, but other views, no. Uh, we have a long ways to go. So that's post-millennial view. The amillennial view, the two-age theory that I outlined, we have the Old Covenant era, the resurrection of Christ, the Gospel age, which is the millennium as described in Revelation chapter 20. Then we have the return of Christ at the end of this age, and we have the resurrection from the dead, the judgment, and the eternal state. So post-millennialism and amillennialism are very simple in their timeline. Amillennialism does not see a golden age on this earth before Christ returns, but it sees basically waves of persecution for God's people that this world will continue as an evil age. Again, tying into what I outlined last week, and I'm not going to pretend that I don't hold to a specific position and I'm going to teach what I believe from the scriptures. Um, the scriptures say this age is a present evil age. The scriptures teach that there are few who enter in 
to the kingdom ultimately. The scriptures teach that before the return of Christ, there's going to be a great apostasy and a great falling away. Okay, so for those reasons, I don't hold to a post-millennial view, but I do understand where they're coming from. Then you have the premillennial dispensational view or the pre-tribulational view. This view says that God has divided history into different dispensations or eras and that there was the era of the law and national Israel had the law and we have now entered into the age of grace and it's a parenthesis in the plan of God, basically. We're in the age of grace. So the original dispensational position said that God had his covenant with his ethnic people, Israel, and that they rejected Christ when he came, and so the kingdom was temporarily taken away from them, and the Gentiles are added to or brought in now, but that this is a a parenthesis. It's not God's main focus in eschatology or the end times. And therefore, there is going to be a pre-tribulation before the tribulation period coming of Christ and a secret rapture so that he can rapture out or remove the Gentiles and he can refocus on his plan of fulfilling the promises to the physical ethnic people of Israel. So this view, again in the timeline, says we are now in the mystery Gentile church age, and then Christ is going to come in a secret rapture, and that's where you get the idea in the Left Behind series of you know the airplanes crashing and piles of clothes and people being raptured out secretly, And that's being done so that God can focus back on Israel, who is truly the apple of God's eye, who is truly the people that he must fulfill the covenant promises to. And then, after the great tribulation, which will take place on the earth in seven years of tribulation, Christ will be revealed in glory. He will set foot on the earth, the Mount of Olives. And then the millennial kingdom will begin And at the end of the millennial kingdom, then you have the new heavens and new earth and the eternal state after that. As we consider these different views and some of the things that they have in common and some of the things where they are dissimilar, this can help us too as we put these views together, okay? All three of the older in history views, so those are the historic premillennial view and the postmillennial view and the amillennial view, all three of these views see the promises made to Israel as being fulfilled in the church, which is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. All three of these views, which again are views that have been that were held for for centuries before the dispensational view came into existence, all of them have in common that they see the promises 
made to Israel as specifically fulfilled either already to Israel in history or then now being fulfilled to the church which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So for these particular views, it doesn't see a secret rapture to take the church out so that God can get back to focusing on Israel because God is now working with Israel, the true spiritual Israel of God, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And in a moment, we're going to open the scriptures together after I finish this preliminary outlining of these views. We'll open the scriptures together and consider these things, okay? So that's a major distinction. You don't have dispensationalism unless you have a distinction between Israel and the church. Okay, it's been said that the dispensational view stands on three legs. It's a stool with three legs. One of those legs is the Israel church distinction. It is essential to the system. You do not have that system if you do not have the distinction between ethnic Israel and the church. The second leg is the idea of a literal hermeneutic. We may talk a little bit about that, but basically, um, I'm just going to put it in a nutshell from my perspective. The, the, some of their scholars have said the literal hermeneutic is that we take the scriptures literally unless it's absurd to do otherwise. But dispensationalists recognize that the Bible is full of figurative language. And so what often happens is when they disagree with someone from another system, they're just disagreeing about which things are figurative and which are not, because we all know that it's figurative. Okay, But they will say a literal hermeneutic, so you have to take the promises made to Israel, and if it says Israel and Judah, that means ethnic Israel and Judah, because, it, because you can take it literally like that, and it's not absurd to say that those are two ethnic Israel and Judah. So, again, these three, three legs, the... Israel and church distinction, the literal hermeneutic, and then the secret rapture of the church. These are three pillars, three legs upon which this dispensational view stands. And you remove any one of those and you don't have dispensationalism any longer. Okay? So, a few more things to help us distinguish these different positions. And that is the return of Christ for one. Two of these positions see a premillennial return of Christ. And that is the dispensational premillennial view and the historic premillennial view. They see Christ coming before the millennium kingdom. The other two views see a postmillennial return of Christ. That's postmillennialism, obviously. And amillennialism, which says we're in the millennium kingdom now. And Christ will come at the end of this age, at the end of the millennium. These views also can be classified by means of their view of the relation of the return of Christ to a future tribulation. Okay? Dispensationalism alone says that the church is going to be removed before the tribulation. Again, all of the older views in history, historic pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, say that the church is going to go through the Great Tribulation. They're going to go through the Tribulation. Dispensationalism alone says that that is going to happen 
after the church has been raptured out. These views also can be categorized by the way they view a future millennium before the eternal state. Dispensationalism, historic premillennialism, postmillennialism see a millennium kingdom um, and then a, a more literal type of millennium kingdom upon the earth. Amillennialism says that we are in that age and it's not so much a literal kingdom upon the earth that we look for. So those are some, some ways that these break down. So hopefully this hasn't been confusing so far, but it's been helpful in the, just a very, very much nutshell presenting these four different views. Again, these views is historic premillennialism and postmillennialism, amillennialism, and dispensational pre-tribulational premillennialism. And what we've looked at already from the scriptures, and we looked at Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds in this age and the age to come, as referred to there. We looked at Luke chapter 20, where Jesus talks about this age being different from the age to come. In looking at the judgment and when that will take place at the return of Christ, in doing so, I've, I've already presented a case for the amillennial position and said that these specific teachings rule out a premillennial position no matter what flavor it is, whether it's historic or not. And again, as I present these things, I want you to know that I'm very much coming from the perspective of these are all within the Christian camp. Okay? Whether I disagree with them or not, these are not positions in and of themselves, as I have outlined them, that we would point to and say these are heresy or that these are, you know, in such error that we have to remove ourselves from fellowship with anyone who holds to these views. Not at all. But last week, if you're familiar with, if you were familiar already with premillennialism and postmillennialism, you would have noted that based on what I presented, that I was opposing both premillennialism and postmillennialism. <laughs> And I believe that the teaching of the two different ages and the teaching uh, that we looked at in detail rules out each of those views. Today, then, I'm going to focus a little bit more particularly on some scriptures that I think help us understand the future coming of Christ and help us understand what we're looking for and this will very much be in opposition of some of the errors of dispensationalism. And I'll be frank with you, I find the dispensational position to hold some errors, and then there are some more extreme positions that some take, and not all dispensationalists take them, but I think that those more extreme positions flow from the system that are more serious errors than the errors of these other views. And I believe, and I'm going to try and promote to you from Scripture today, that 
there's some things that, in fact, I think lessen the glory of Christ and his work. And so we're going to consider those in more detail today. One of just the basic considerations, the fundamental considerations as as we work our way forward here, is that we, we do need to realize that the dispensational view, which says that the church and God bringing in the Gentiles and everything is just a parenthesis, and God's got to secretly rapture us out, the church out, so he can get back to Israel, that this view teaches that the true end times or eschatology is centered around, focused around Israel, and basically it relegates all of the significance, all of the application, everything regarding the end times to someone other than us. It it has no direct application really for us, except in issues like we have to unilaterally support the nation of Israel, or we're going to be cursed by God. And I'm going to talk about that one in just a minute. But basically what this view of eschatology does is it gets people watching the news, watching the Middle East, trying to figure out when the rapture is going to come. But the glorious truths of eschatology in regard to um, how we're to live in order to bring honor and glory to God, expecting the return of Christ, can sometimes be undermined with this view. The glorious reality that we, the church, and it's a, it's, I say glorious reality, but it's taught throughout Revelation. We, the ter- church, will face persecution from unbelievers and have opportunity to magnify the name of our Savior Christ by how we handle persecution and bring glory to Him by overcoming such persecution that these things can tend to be undermined. Sam Waldron, in his book, The End Times Made Simple, says this, The fact is, however, that the popular eschatology widely taught in our day in evangelical churches really does have comparatively little to do with the gospel of Christ. Prophecy was often taught in the evangelical church in which I was raised, One of the things I keenly remember being taught was that the church age in which we live was a great parenthesis in biblical prophecy, a mystery period unforeseen by biblical prophecy. It would end with the rapture of the church by the secret coming of Christ in the air before the tribulation period. Since this coming was imminent, that is to say might occur at any moment, it would not be preceded by prophetic events. Only with this secret rapture would the prophetic clock start ticking again. With the secret rapture of the church, the important events of biblical prophecy would begin to unfold. They involved the appearance of the Antichrist in his world empire, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, a seven-year tribulation, a glorious appearing of Christ, and a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth, all having to do with God's other earthly people, the Jewish nation, not his heavenly people, the church. Waldron says, I remember feeling disappointed that I lived in such blank or vacant period with regard to biblical prophecy. And then he says this, such a system of prophecy really does have little to do with the gospel of Christ. It is not surprising that the reaction of the Christian public to it is either fascination or irritation. 
If the church is a mysterious parenthesis in world history, he says, and if the prophetic clock only begins ticking again with the rapture of the church safely to the bliss of heaven, and if biblical prophecy is really about God's plan for the Jews, then the reaction of Christians can only be the fascination of the speculative on the one hand or the irritation of the practical on the other. As we consider this, One of the key principles of hermeneutics, and this is held by the three older views that I outlined previously, is that God has progressively revealed truth through the ages and in the scriptures that we primarily look to the New Testament writings whenever they speak about the Old Testament or the events that took place, and we interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. It's a fundamental, and the Reformers promoted this hermeneutic, a fundamental hermeneutic that the New Testament is to be used to interpret the Old Testament, not vice versa. And we find support in Scripture for such teaching in passages like Hebrews and chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, which speaks about Christ and his coming. And it begins in Hebrews 1 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, notice this, we're in the last days. You can't read through the New Testament without realizing we are in the last days. We're not waiting for the last days to come. We're in them. Okay? We're in the last days of this age. Spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Notice, spoken through his son. And what did Jesus tell his apostles, he said, the Holy Spirit will come and bring to remembrance everything that I have taught you. That was a promise that they would be able to faithfully, by the inspiration of God, write the Holy Scriptures. The New Testament Scriptures are the teachings of Christ. And God has spoken to us in His Word. Think about it this way, and I've said this before. Every time we have in the New Testament any type of statement about the Old Testament, we have a divinely inspired commentary on the Old Testament scriptures. Isn't that encouraging? We look at the Old Testament, we read through things, and it's like, wow, what does this mean? What does this mean? If the New Testament speaks to it at all, we have a divinely inspired, God-given commentary on what the Old Testament scriptures mean. Now, how does this tie in with what I'm presenting to you about these end times views? <clears throat> Dispensational scholars are very upfront in telling you that you must use the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament. In the book, The Millennium, Four Views, Herman Hoyt, who takes a dispensational position, quotes another dispensational scholar favorably, and says, 
that human history is majorly divided into Act 1 and 2, Act 1 in the Old Testament, Act 2 in the New Testament, and you have to read Act 2, the New Testament, in light of Act 1, the Old Testament. That's a reversal of the biblical hermeneutic. Now, sure, you need to read the Old Testament also, yes, but... We don't go back to the Old Testament and say, no, I want to try and understand what the author of Hebrews is teaching here or or what the Apostle Paul is teaching here or what Jesus is teaching here. So I'm going to go back to the Old Testament and read it back there so I can understand what these guys are saying. That's backwards. And I would propose the only way you can get the dispensational system at all is to reverse the hermeneutic. You would not have it whatsoever if you are truly reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Because when you look to the New Testament, it is emphatically clear, and it is made clear in multiple places, that there is now one people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles, and that that people of God is true Israel, spiritual Israel. And there is no hint whatsoever in the New Testament that God is going to change that in the future and go back to the old covenant institutions like the rebuilding of the temple and the old covenant sacrifices and ditch the new covenant for a time and go back to the old covenant and that we're just in a parenthesis. There's no hint of that in the New Testament. You have to get that from the Old Testament and then read it into the New Testament. So, in the New Testament, and here's some of the evidences that are presented. The New Testament uses titles for the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, now in the New Testament, that were spoken only of ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. So, if you look to 1 Peter and chapter 2 as one example of this, and there are many examples, but this is just one. We don't have time today to to go through multiple examples for each point I'm going to make, so I'll give one scripture or two scriptures in support of these points. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. In Exodus chapter 19, God told the people of Israel, you are a royal priesthood, you are a chosen generation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God says to the church, both Jews and Gentiles, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now notice this, this next verse shows clearly it's talking about Gentiles included who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So there are titles which were previously only applied to the nation of Israel and believers in the nation of Israel, which are now applied broadly to the entire church, both Jews and Gentiles. Okay? Secondly, the scriptures emphatically and directly teach in clear teaching passages of scripture outlined in great detail 
that the promises made to Abraham apply to all those who are of faith in God, like Abraham was of faith in God, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Okay? So, Romans 4 and Galatians chapter 3 are two such passages. Look at Romans chapter 4, first of all. Now, I I want to be fair. I don't want to misrepresent anyone in their position. Um, Evangelical and generally sound dispensational scholars will not disagree that these passages refer to both Jews and Gentiles and being blessed with believing Abraham. But where there's a disconnect, I believe, is that they say, but yet, but yet, God is going to rapture the church out so he can get back to focusing on the people who are truly the apple of his eye, and that is the ethnic people of Israel. And I don't, I don't see that break in that timeline in, his, in, in the Bible. I don't see that. I see this as being spoken of in these passages like Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, and we'll look at Hebrews in a minute. I see this as being spoken of as this was God's plan throughout all history that with the coming of Christ, He would be given the nations as His inheritance. And that there would be an expansion of the kingdom of God. It's not a replacement theology, it's an expansion theology. That the Messiah would be rewarded for His faithfulness by being given the nations. And it's not that, oh, well, that's just a hiccup in history and God's going to rapture out the church so he can get back to blessing those that are truly his favorite, and that is the nation of Israel. No, 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 (laughs) no. The scriptures do not present it in that type of language whatsoever. And what you have to do, in my opinion, to come up with that view is you have to take Old Testament passages of Scripture and you have to say, well, these promises like of the temple being rebuilt and the land and all that, I don't see those as having been fulfilled in history, and so we have to wait for those to be fulfilled in history, so God must be planning to do that after he raptures the church out. But yet in Joshua it says that God did fulfill the promises of the land to Israel. And in regard to the rebuilding of the temple... It was rebuilt twice after those prophecies. Once originally when the people of Israel were taken out of exile and went back to the land and then it was expanded under Herod for over 40 years rebuilding project before it was destroyed. So it has been fulfilled in history. And the Bible pointed to so many spiritual realities and those being fulfilled in the first coming of Christ and his work. Okay, okay. so Romans chapter 4. Regarding faith, beginning with verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
Now he's going to answer the questions about the Gentiles. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised Jews only or upon the uncircumcised also, the Gentiles? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Was he, was he already circumcised when he received, when he had faith? No, he was not circumcised yet is what the argument is going to be. Not while circumcised, but while un, uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father, notice this, of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Abraham is the father of all who believe. And the father of circumcision to those who are not of or who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. What is this saying? All those who are of faith are the children of Abraham, truly. Now, does this apply in any way, shape, or form to the material promises made to Abraham, such as the promise of a land? Read on. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Notice this, the promise that he would be heir of the world. Abraham was promised a land. That land was initially given to the Jewish people. Under the old covenant, the Jewish people were told, if you obey me, you will be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed and you'll basically lose the land. Jesus came as the Messiah and he said to the Jews, the kingdom has been taken from you and given to a nation more deserving of it. They forfeited the land. Does that mean the promises of God are of no effect? Does that mean God reneged on his word or his promises? No, because God says all those who are of faith with Abraham are heirs of the promises. That includes the land. But it's broad in here. You notice it says of the world, not just of Palestine. And what did Jesus say? The meek shall inherit the earth. When the scriptures say that we are heirs of the promises made to Abraham, you know what that means? When God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, guess who that applies to you now? We are the recipients of that promise. When God said to Abraham, I will give you and your seed this land. Guess who inherits that now? We do, the people of God. But in God's eschatological timeline, we just have to wait a little while, but then we're going to inherit the entire new creation, the new heavens and new earth, because Romans chapter 8, we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. So a, a massive error of dispensationalism is to say, 
that God made these material promises to the people of Israel that those were not fully fulfilled and so that God has to be, to be in order to be faithful to, to his word, he has to fulfill those in a future eschatological event directly for the ethnic people of Israel. When the New Testament says, no, now, how many peoples of God are there? There is one. He has made one of the two. And who inherits the promises? God's people. Now, does that exclude the Jews? Not if they come to faith in Christ. If they come to faith in Christ, they join the church. And they inherit the promises. Look quickly at Galatians chapter 3. I want to really support this point. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is speaking here chronologically. It is speaking mentally in regards to the law. And it outlines some of the same things as Romans chapter 4. Let's jump in at verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Notice that. What does it say? Only those who are of faith. Only. You are not a spiritual child of Abraham in virtue of being an ethnic Jew. You remember what happened when John the Baptist came and started preaching and Jesus came and started preaching? And the Jews were saying, hey, we're the people of God because we are Jews. And John says, God could raise up from these stones children. A resounding statement throughout the scriptures it means nothing that you are a Jew when it comes to your spiritual standing before God it means nothing just that you are an ethnic Jew when it comes to your spiritual standing before God and Romans chapter 9 outlines that so very clearly not all those who are of Israel the ethnic people of Israel are Israel the true Israel of God, the spiritual Israel, okay? And these passages are teaching us that the Gentiles are now spiritual Israel, that they are brought in. <laughs> so we continue reading, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Again, from the initial promises made to Abraham, with promises such as, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and through you all the nations will be blessed. Here's a divinely inspired commentary on that covenant and those promises and blessings. And the divinely inspired commentary says that only those who are of faith are recipients of these, 
And it says that when God said, all the nations will be blessed through you, Abraham, he was talking about the gospel. And that Jesus would be born of the Jews and the gospel would go forth to the Gentiles and all the nations would be blessed. One of, one of the errors that is oftentimes promoted in dispensationalism is that we must unilaterally, unequivocally, namely, regardless of the circumstances, we must support the Jewish nation and Jewish people or we will be cursed by God. And it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter if they reject Christ. It doesn't matter if they commit you know, human rights violations or whatever else. We have to support them or God is going to curse us. That misses what the New Testament teaches about who the Israel of God is. It misses it entirely. Now, I mean, I'll make this statement. Um, Israel is a political ally of the United States, and I'm not opposed to supporting Israel whatsoever. Israel has her enemies, and you know, Iran wants to blow Israel off the map. You know, the Muslims hate Israel. Yes, support Israel, sure. But not unilaterally, unequivocally support them and believe that if we disagree with them in any way and don't support them materially, financially, politically, etc., that God's going to curse us. No, absolutely not. Support the people of God in the church. If you do not, you will feel the anger of their father, our father, God. That's what the New Testament teaches because we are the Israel of God. We're the Israel of God. We're his people. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse, written, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now notice this, divinely inspired commentary on the Abrahamic covenant. Now to Abraham and his seed, and you'll probably see that capitalized in your Bible. There's a reason for that, because it's referring specifically to Christ here in this context. Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, that's the old covenant, the law made at Mount Sinai, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance of, is of the law, it is no longer a promise. God gave it to Abraham by promise. And he goes on and he talks a little bit more about the law and it being our tutor to bring us to Christ. But notice this to the point that we're trying to see here. Verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And notice this, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Your heirs according to the promises made to Abraham. And that's not going to change. And we're not looking for a time when God has got to get this church under this new covenant out of the way so he can go back to focusing on the apple of his eye, Israel. And there are many who hold to that in the dispensational schema. And there are some that get so fixated on Israel that they truly believe that there are two peoples of God and that the people of God that God loves the most is the people of Israel. And it's presented in those terms. It's presented in their magazines and literature. It's presented by their preachers. And we are here basically to support Israel. And if we do not do that, then we're going to get cursed by God. And the end times is about God getting back to Israel. And I don't want you to believe that. Because that's not the teaching of the New Testament scriptures, nor is it the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. Because the scriptures are in agreement with one another. So that this view basically relegates the end times events to the nation of Israel. It interprets the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. It promotes the ethnic people of Israel as the people of God. And I want to tell you just just practically how this plays itself out, okay? I'm in the jail. Didn't pay my fines, so they locked me up, you know, and I'm in jail. Not really. (laughs) Although... Just on a side note, and, and somebody can help me, I forget, I forget their names, whether it was, was it some of the Waldensians? There was a group of people that actually sold themselves as slaves because it was the only way they were going to get the gospel into a certain area. They sold themselves as slaves so that they could preach the gospel to the slaves and get themselves to a new area. Now, I'm not saying we should break the law to get thrown in jail so that we can preach in the jail. I'm not saying that, but it just reminded me of that. What incredible zeal for the gospel of Christ. What incredible zeal. But anyway, I'm in, I'm in jail. And there's a man there who, after the Bible study, and I, I had just met this man that evening. He's an inmate. He tells me after the Bible study, he says, I'm a Jew. He said, are there any Jewish temples in the area? I'm scratching my head like, I don't think so. <laughs> Not that I know of. Maybe there is, but I don't know of any. Okay, well, it becomes apparent over the next couple of Bible studies that he's very outspoken about being a Jew, at least to the degree that the majority of the inmates there know that he's a Jew. So the next Bible study that I have, there's a young guy there who very apparently has a church background because he knows where certain passages of Scripture are and he's tracking with me a little bit as I'm teaching. After this Bible study, he goes over to the man who's a Jew and he says, hey, so you're a Jew. And this man says, yes, I am. And he says, you're the chosen of God, man. 
Can you believe that? That's an atrocity. It was in ignorance. It's done in ignorance. But here's a man by every indication in his communicating with me, this Jewish man who is lost and bound for hell. And he has someone who is indoctrinated into this dispensational system and ignorantly, because most many dispensationalists would not do this, okay? But ignorantly, he goes and tells this Jewish man, you are the chosen of God. And, and the Jewish man says, thank you. He may have just confirmed this man's descent into hell. And that is heartbreaking. But there are men like John Hagee, who in his writing and in his teachings says, and I quote, the Jewish people are our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they have not yet received Christ as their Messiah. That's wicked. And that will lead people to hell. And that ought not to be said. Anyone who does not bow the knee to Christ and embrace Christ as the Messiah and then dies in this life, will face the wrath of God. And we must not equivocate on this. We must not quibble. We must, must promote. And pray for me as I go back to the jail, and as I promote to this man there, that there is one way to make your calling and election sure, and you must bow the knee to Jesus and accept Him as the Messiah, or you are not the chosen of God. You are an enemy of God, and you will face God's wrath. There are some, again, like John Hagee, he developed an organization to unilaterally support the Jewish people, and he said it's non-conversional in nature. He said, we're not going to try and get the Jews saved. We're just going to support them materially and financially and politically with this organization. <laughs> if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul, what does it profit? Now, again... I don't want to misrepresent people. Somebody like John MacArthur say that's an abomination. That ought not to be done. John MacArthur's a dispensationalist. Okay, John MacArthur recounts how he was once called by a, a Jewish college and they said, we want you to come and speak. And he said, okay, but if I come, I will speak on one topic. Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God as prophesied in the Old Testament. <laughs> And they said, well, go ahead. And he did. And he got death threats afterwards. But so I'm not trying to, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but I'm saying, I'm saying one of the pitfalls, one of the errors that can take place is this promotion of Israel as the people of God and not seeing that only those who have faith are truly the people of God. One final thing that I want to I want to bring out, and again, I, I think this is very important. This is very important. I don't break fellowship with people who disagree. If, if you're in a place of disagreeing, you're not going to be 
rejected or shamed or considered a lesser Christian here in our congregation. Not at all. But I do want to convince you otherwise if you hold to this. And that is that the view in the dispensational system that when Christ comes in his millennial kingdom that there will be a rebuilt temple where God will approve of animal sacrifices being reinstituted as a memorial to Jesus flies in the face of the teaching of Christ's completed work and everything that the sacrifices in the temple pointed to. I believe that it is to dishonor the work of Christ to promote this view. I think it's a slap in the face to the work of Jesus. And I think the book of Hebrews cannot be more clear. It cannot be more clear. Let's turn to just a couple passages in support of this. The entire book of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is greater than. (laughs) He is supreme. He is superior to everything. And it it talks about the angels, and he's greater than the angels. It talks about the prophets, and he's greater than the prophets. And about Joshua, and he's greater than Joshua and Moses, and he's greater than Moses. And his covenant, which is the new covenant, is greater than the old covenant. And his sacrifice is the superior sacrifice to which all the sacrifices pointed. And he is the great high priest. He is supreme, superior, the best, the greatest. Uno numero, number one, Christ is it. And it says of this sacrificial system with the whole priesthood and everything that was involved in this. And and realize, again, the dispensations are saying there's going to be a reinstituted sacrificial system. There's going to be a temple that's rebuilt. It says this in chapter 7 that Jesus is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I'm paraphrasing until we get to verse uh, 18. He is that because... There had to be a change of the law. The former sacrifices were not sufficient to save men's souls. And notice in verse 18, it says, From the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. That's talking about the old priesthood and the old sacrifices. Notice that terminology. An annulling of the commandment Because of its weakness and its unprofitableness, it couldn't get the job done, and it is gone. It is annulled. For the law, which had the the temple, which had the sacrifices, which had the priesthood, the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. But this dispensational position says, even though this better hope has come, that God is going to sanction, going back to that which was weak, unprofitable, and that's going to be done as a memorial to Jesus. I I don't get that, folks. I don't get it. It's kind of like this. Let's Let's say somebody has been communicating with someone for a couple of years, a a man communicating with a woman, and it has a photograph of her and has communicated with her, FaceTime online, 
hasn't met her yet, but they develop a fantastic relationship and they're going to get married. And finally the day comes and she moves from overseas and meets up with him and they get married. But then a day comes when he takes a picture of her which he had from their previous relationship. And he begins to communicate with that picture and his wife's sitting over in the corner and he's talking to the picture. And then he says, I'm going to take you out on a date. And he takes the picture with him out on a date and leaves his wife at home. And he's looking at the picture which just represented her and her coming to him. He's looking at at that as the thing to honor, as that the thing to communicate with, as the thing to take out on the date. Uh, that's what I would see. That we would look at that and say, "You're crazy, man." <laughs> There's your wife. What are you do? What are you doing, honoring her picture like this and taking her picture out to supper and setting her picture up over, you know, across the table from you with a little candle in between, you know, and and uh, she's going to order the the uh, roast lamb, you know. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense according to the teaching of Scripture. You see, all that was a picture and it all pointed to Jesus. And the Bible in no way presents that God's going to say, okay, it all pointed to Jesus and it's gone now and annulled, but God's going to bring it back because the rebuilding of the temple as prophesied to the Jews didn't really take place in history the way God said it was, so it can't be that, so we have to see that as done in the future. No, God says that it's done. What part of annulling and getting rid of don't we understand? Look to chapter 9. It speaks about the temple. The earthly sanctuary. There was a first covenant with ordinances of design, divine service. There was the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple. And the temple was designed after the tabernacle, you understand. And when these things had been thus prepared, in verse 6, the priests went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Into the second part, the high priest went alone once, not without blood, but he offered it himself and for the people's sins. And the Holy Spirit said, was indicating that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest at that time while the first tabernacle was standing. Notice this, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and offerings and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. When was the time of reformation? Christ and his work, everything pointed to him. It was a picture, a divinely painted picture acted out every single day of people's need for access to God and atonement for sin. And Christ came as our high priest who has given us access to God and atoned for our sins with a once for all sacrifice. And God is never again going to implement, institute animal sacrifices. It would be a slap in the face to the work of his son who made the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And I realize I'm getting passionate about this, but I'm, I'm so convinced of this from God's Word. 
We are not looking forward to God getting the church out of the way so we can get back to Israel and getting a temple built over in the Middle East and everything else. I mean, the fact of the matter is this, folks. There's an Islamic mosque, the Dome of the Rock, which sits on the Temple Mount right now. And there's a dark religion which is taught in that place. If the Jews in our lifetimes were to take over that mount and build a temple and they were to reinstitute sacrifices in our lifetimes, now this isn't according to the dispensational schema so much, okay? But I'm saying if within our lifetimes and there's no rapture to get the church out or anything, and there is a Jewish temple instituted on that place and sacrifices are reinstituted and Jewish Orthodox religion is practiced, we have just traded one dark religion for another. That's all that's taken place. It would not be a cause for rejoicing for the people of God. Now, if there was a sound godly church built on that mountain... And Jews and, and Palestinian Christians and Jewish Christians join together and worship Christ from that place. Then we rejoice. Then we rejoice. Because that's what Jesus came to accomplish. Was to bring in from all the nations his elect. So that we would all worship him together. And we don't need animal sacrifices to memorialize the work of Christ, we have the Lord's table, which is, I guess the elements are being gathered. We have the Lord's table. This is what Jesus said we're to do in remembrance of Him. Is we partake of the cup and of the bread to remember His work. We don't we need, no one needs animal sacrifices put back in place. That was just a picture. It all pointed to Jesus. And we are now in the new covenant. And in the new covenant is here. Hebrews chapter 8, quoting the Old Testament. I will make a new covenant with Israel and with Judah after those days, says the Lord. And he says the old covenant was old, decaying, vanishing away. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. We are the Israel of God who worship in spirit and in truth. And we partake of the Lord's table in order to honor our great high priest, the mediator of the new covenant, the one who has brought us in and made us heirs with him of the promises. And we are blessed with believing Abraham. So... We will turn then to the observance of the Lord's